Welcome, everyone, to episode 120 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we will be discussing the prime video drama Sound of Metal. Before we get to that, however, with me for today's episode, as always, is my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. You know, we're getting close to the holiday uh, season here. It it feels weird because the weather is just like now starting to get cold. Like, this is like the first time in 2020 that it's been cold, at least here. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've had a different scenario, but I realized this morning that I haven't done any of my Christmas shopping yet, and I should probably do that because I know that shipping is going to be probably kind of a nightmare with COVID and everything. But luckily, my family all likes books, and I could just buy like a Kindle ebook at 11:58 on the on Christmas Eve, and they'll they'll they're never the wiser. So um, yeah. we'll see. I need to look at their wish lists, but it's not not quite in panic mode yet for that portion. That's very handy. Yeah. Christmas, Christmas is, gifts yeah. in the form of ebooks is does not does mean shipping is not a is not a difficult thing. In fact, like <laughs> if you go to my mom's wish list, like it's literally just like 60 or 70 ebooks. Like that's literally all she asked for. So good for her. Like I've recently gotten into reading before bed again. I was start I was reading the new um I wish I could. Michael Connolly uh Lincoln Lawyer yeah. book. Nikki um, Allen that came out. Yeah, it's it's this I don't even remember what it's called. The uh, something about the something guilt of it, something about innocence. I don't know. Whatever. It's Gosh, it's, I, it's it's a new book. His first new Mickey Haller book, which is the Lincoln Lawyer series, in seven years. And so I saw it. and I was like, I'll start reading this before bed. And I'm into reading before bed again. And I'm out thinking about what I'm going to read after I finish this book before bed now. So I've just gotten back into reading again. I haven't read I anything since normal since I devoured normal people in 24 right. hours. <laughs> back in like you can read the, you can read the Queen's Gambit. I uh yeah I could. That's true. I yeah I wish I could get back into read like I just never have time to read anymore since like except on vacation like when i went on vacation this year i read a few books but i haven't read anything since then just because like watching movies has like replaced where where i used to read a lot in my life and so i did ask for like there's this book about days to confused that just came out um about the making of days to confused that just came out and i listened to the ringer the ringers podcast the big picture um, they did a whole link later episode and they interviewed him and the person who wrote the book. And it sounds like it's a great book. So I hope I do get that. And I will, would, would try to make time and read that, but see, it's related to movies. Like that's, yeah. that's all the time I have to read anymore. Yeah. I feel like if I, I, luckily I don't have that up where I don't feel the need to like read a, I don't know, like a, how the making of like tended or something like, I'm sure that book exists out there, but I haven't yet been like tempted to, to read books. And there's well, definitely a, a book about Nolan out there. I know the making of Nolan films, but now we're just not yet Nolan putting out like a hit piece about, you know, WB HBO max. That's yeah, he's not, he's, he's not the only one. Denny Villeneuve too. This, that's true. This past week about a skating as, as uh, Chris Nolan is, although like I mentioned to you and we won't be talking about it later, thankfully, but, um, I think Denny's probably a little bit more vindicated than than Chris Nolan is because he's actually has a movie that's being put out mm-hmm. on HBO Max without being consulted. So uh, maybe a little bit more justified in his frustration. Although I think that a lot of the frustration is understandable, even if a bit overblown. Anyway, 
why don't we go ahead and get to today's uh, episode and today's podcast. We will be discussing the 2019 TIFF debutante Sound of Metal that was picked up by Amazon, I think the week after it had debuted. I, I didn't remember the price I went for, but it was one of the many sort of high-priced TIFF acquisitions by Amazon. They've been very... Uh, They've been opening the purse, the purse strings, or loosening the purse strings at, at the at the festivals the last few years, picking up that things like Late Night and a couple other movies, more comedy focused, I'd say, than drama focused. But this one is quite quite the opposite of comedy. I think there's you know very little comedic relief in this film. It is a very heavy drama. It stars Riz Ahmed and is helmed by first time director, I believe, Darius Martyr, and that is the Sound of Metal. As I mentioned already, it follows Ahmed's Ruben, a heavy metal drummer who is one half of the band Black Gammon with his girlfriend and singer, Lou, played by Olivia Cook. Ruben and Lou live out of their RV while driving from gig to gig, and one day while preparing to perform for a concert, Ruben suddenly loses the majority of his hearing. As this persists the next morning, he's checked out by a doctor who performs a hearing test on Ruben that determines he can only hear 20 to 30% of his original capacity, a rate that will only deteriorate as he continues to expose himself to loud noises. In spite of these cautionary words, Ruben continues to perform with Lou with the hope of earning enough money to buy cochlear implants and, unco- and uncover an insurance uncovered expensive option that might be able to correct his loss of hearing. When Lou discovers Ruben's con- sudden loss of hearing, they find themselves at an impasse where Ruben wishes to continue playing while Lou wants the opposite, as she's concerned for both his hearing and his four years of sobriety. What happens next is an unapologetic and seemingly authentic portrayal of both deafness and at least some segment of the deaf community with immersive sound design, intimate cinematography, and a significant co-starring performance from Paul Racy, who himself has spent a significant portion of his life in the deaf community, thanks to being the hearing son of two deaf parents. Scott, did you find Sound of Metal to be an impactful and insightful look into the deaf community through the eyes of an impassioned central performance? Or was Sound of Metal simply a lot of noise? Uh, yeah, Scott. So I saw this a couple of weeks ago. I actually had the for- good fortune to see it in theaters. And I actually think this is, it is a movie that is amplified by the theatrical experience, as you can probably imagine, you yeah. know, by watching it at home. Um, like you said, the sound design is really interesting. Like they do, uh, you know, they go really far to try and make you, you know, feel like you are deaf or hearing impaired. They really, They really try to put you in. Ruben's shoes in a lot of places, uh, and it, it's an interesting effect that I hope goes recognized in award season, uh, even though it's not, you know, like, I like I, I think this is a year when, like, it has a better chance, right? Because, like, the sound yeah. categories, it's usually, like, you know, big budget yeah. movies and stuff. Well, we haven't gotten those this year, so, and the one that we did get, Tenet, the sound mixing was actually pretty bad in that movie, so uh, I, that doesn't mean it's it's not going to get nominated anyway. And the new yeah. best sound category, right? But yeah, sound design, I, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope that uh, I hope that Sound of Metal is not forgotten when they uh, are considering this category. But yeah, Scott, this movie when I came out of it, I really liked it, but I also uh, think that it has grown in my in my mind since uh, I saw it for the first time. I moved it up yeah. a couple slots on my list today because uh, because of the fact that it's sitting with me. Um, Absolutely. I, like, I think that really other than I'm thinking of ending things, maybe Possessor, you know, Boy State, like, you know, my favorite movies like this, this uh, from this year, this like movie has sat with me as much as those, if not more than some of those. Um, and, you know, that's something that I think I value a lot. 
in terms of reassessing movies, like obviously rewatching is one thing, but even like, like this, I, like, I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And I think one of the reasons is because I actually like personally have had a like deep seated paranoia, fear, whatever you want to call it for a few years about losing my hearing, about going deaf because I wear headphones so often. Um, and you know, I listen to music in my car. That's pretty loud. I love to go to concerts when concerts are still a thing. And I love to be at the front during concerts and, uh, stand up there, uh, you know, real close to the front next to, you know, where it's loudest. So I, I'm very paranoid about it. I used to wear earbuds all the time, but I bought over the ear headphones, you know, specifically for one of the main reasons was because they are better for your ears than, uh, than earbuds are because earbuds are going like right into, right your, into the eardrum no, yeah. or whatever. Um, and whereas over the ear headphones are not doing, um, and that, and like, you know, because sound is just like so important to me with like loving movies, with loving music, with like, I can't imagine not having of all the senses, like that's the one where it's like, it would be, it would be really brutal to have to lose. So I think that, uh, that is one reason that this movie resonated so strongly for me. And, you know, when I came out of it, one of the first things I said was this, is one of the saddest movies, in my opinion, that I've seen in a long time, um, because of the, what what Ruben has to go to, the loss that he has to go to, not just of his hearing, but of what happens in his own life uh, with his relationships, with stuff like that, uh, with, you know, that is accompanied with his hearing loss, his career as well. Right. Because, you know, he's a drummer and that is a occupation that is, you know, wholly reliant on you being able to hear. Um, and, you know, we just kind of watch him slowly losing everything and, you know, trying to get it back. But what does getting it back mean? Like, and that is, you know, one of the questions that uh, comes up sort of in the back half of the movie, the last third of the movie. Um, and yeah, I think this movie overall is just really, really strong um, and very emotionally affecting. I think Riz Ahmed gives the best performance I've seen in 2020 uh, by an actor for, for reasons we can discuss, but I was blown away by his performance in this role. I think that it portrays a community and a, uh, disability, I could think of the word disability in hearing loss that uh, is not often represented on screen. I, I mean, I love movies about like underrepresented communities, uh, you know, as as you may know, if you hear me talk about some of my favorite movies. But um, so I think that aspect of it is interesting. Again, I think the technical aspects are really interesting, like the sound design. There's some really, really interesting moments in the movie where, you know, he particularly towards the end when the cochlear implants come up. Um, again, I don't want to spoil much, but what they do with the sound after it, you know, when, once we get to that point is really interesting. Uh, there's complex ideas going on. I think that there are some places where it, the movie could easily veer into like being melodramatic and it avoids that at every turn. And, and Riz Ahmed's performance, I think, is the reason why. Although I think all three lead performances that you mentioned are great in the movie. Like, I think all three of them are, you know, a borderline awards caliber. I mean, Riz Ahmed, certainly, but then Olivia Cook and Paul Racy, I think, are also really, really strong in, in their supporting roles. Um, and yeah, this it's a unique movie. It's a, a creatively uh, filmed movie. Technically, it has great performances. And uh, I, you know, it really struck an emotional chord with me. So ultimately, you know, again, I really, really liked it coming out of it. But the more I've sat with it, I, I do think this is absolutely one of the best movies of the year and that there's really not much about it to what I, that I would not recommend. I think it's excellent. Yeah, Scott. I mean, we were talking before. So you saw this, I think a couple of weeks ago, even now it's been yeah. a little bit because it did have that brief theatrical release before it came out on prime video 
I mean, as a time of release, like two Fridays ago. And we're, you know, so we're reviewing this about a week later than we normally would for new releases. But you saw that even before it came out on Prime Video. And, you know, we were talking about it. And I said, you know, I really think I, I love Riz Ahmed. It's not and it's not an act. He's not an actor that we've, we've gotten to really talk about at all uh, since we started the podcast. Right. Because he was in Venom, but we didn't review that on the podcast. And it wasn't a very good movie. And Rogue One was before, you know, our podcast started. So I don't even think that we've even had the opportunity besides Venom to review a movie of his. And, you know, I remember first coming across him in, in the night of and was totally obsessed with him, tried to figure out what else he'd been in and go and see those things because he's just amazing in, in that limited series on HBO. And so finally getting to come around and see a movie like this where, you know, even before you go and watch this, if, if you look at anything about this movie, about what particularly his performance, like the making of this film and what he went through to make the movie, like you just kind of get the sense of, like, wow, like this is going to be an amazing performance because, you know, he learned sign language. He learned how to be a heavy metal drummer. He really immersed himself in the culture of the deaf community. It seems like, you know, in real life, he spent a lot of time, you know, with the kids in the classroom that he's in the classroom within the film. And when you see those types of like dedicated, committed performances at the center point of a story that I think, you know, the deaf community is is what it is, but it's ultimately a small portion of our society, not to discredit that, but like most people don't have the experience, you know, of, of a community and understanding or, and what it feels like or going through that experience of becoming deaf, especially, you know, with many people in that community being born deaf, right, versus, you know, losing their hearing over time is also a very different element of the experience. And I think that with that, it, this movie just does an incredible job, I think, of making that experience like both raw and like I was saying, I think at the outset, unapologetic, because I think a lot of the portrayal of the deaf, commu deaf community in other films doesn't explore like the darker side of that or, or really any any facet of the community beyond just almost glorifying it in a way or putting it on a pedestal and, you know, not not giving a, a real kind of raw interpretation or raw look into what that might be like. And this film does all of that. And not only does it do all that, but it also does it you know, through the eyes of a committed performance, like I was talking about from Riz Ahmed, that carries, you know, every facet of the film forward in a way that keeps you, you know, really invested in this person who seems super self-destructive uh, in a character. Like, you you really feel like he's constantly tiptoeing, you know, the edge of a cliff of, like, how he's living his life. And I think that's such a critical part of, of the movie. And because this movie, I think, constantly feels like it's tiptoeing the edge of what you said, Scott, like being melodramatic or being on it, like, I don't know, having a lighter impact than you feel like it should, but also like finding its footing and having that impact that you don't expect. And, you know, I don't think I've had the same concerns or the same level of concerns that you described talking about, like fearing losing your hearing or, or whatever. But I, I think that, you know, my experience, you know, every once in a while, like whenever I hear like a ringing in my ear, I think about, oh man, is this like the first sign of something like tinnitus, like with baby driver mm -hmm. or something like that. And things like that. And, and the thought of not being able to communicate in a way in the ways that you've you've learned how to communicate for your entire life and and having that sort of erased is like is really scary. I mean, it's like on par, I think, with being like dropped in, you know, a foreign country without any real ability to communicate or whatever. Right. Like it feels sort of like immersive and scary. And I think this film is able to evoke that with its sound design. So, sometimes it's lack of sound design, right? That sometimes when it just completely removes sound from the scene. It's really, really impactful. And, you know, we were talking, I guess, get back, to get back to my original point, we were talking before that you felt like this is going to be a movie that I really loved. 
and I won't hide the eight ball, Scott. Like this is this is a movie that I think I like the most of 2020 so far. I still don't think it quite touches normal people or the Queen's Gambit. We can talk more about that on a different episode, I'm sure. But you know, th- this movie I found you know impactful from the moment you know the movie started almost right. Like you get the opening scenes of him, and you so like if you're watching this movie, like you kind of know what it's about, right? Like you know what's going to happen in the movie, and you can and you fear that from the opening scene, right? You fear what's going to happen for him, um, and it doesn't take very long to happen either. And you just see this sort of this guy's life fall apart. And that's like, it, that's really emotional. And the, there's some, you know, with that, with that sort of really sad sorrow, uh, sorrowful emotion, there's also this really beautiful scenes, I think also in the film that really touch sort of the opposite end of the emotional spectrum for me. And so like start to finish, I felt like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about ratings later. Sure. But this just really felt like such a complete film. And I've seen some criticisms out there, light critics. I want to say light criticisms out there of it falling into the melodramatic in its final act. And I suppose around this relationship between Ruben and Lou, but I, I guess I just didn't feel oh. that. I, I didn't feel that in the movie for me. I, it, it felt really genuine and authentic and not melodramatic all the way through. And I was surprised by that. I, I think, it, I think it, I, I mean, I'll talk later where I feel like it just falls short of being like, a, you know, a perfect film. But to me, it just felt like it, it does deliver on a lot of the emotional notes. But, you know, not all those emotional notes are super satisfying at the same time. Although I think it is satisfying in some parts. But I think I've rambled on it probably enough here without us getting into a more guided conversation about this. So why don't we both go to the place where I think we both point to as being the strongest part of the film. And that's Riz Ahmed's lead performance. For me, you know, you mentioned that it's the best performance you've seen in 2020. I think it's definitely the best lead performance I've seen in 2020. No doubt. I'd have to think more broadly if there's a supporting performance that might challenge it. Although I think Paul Racy uh, gives it a run for its money in some of the, particularly in some of the scenes that he gives later on in the movie, but we'll start with Riz Ahmed. Scott, tell me more about your thoughts about his, his, I think very immersed performance in this, in this movie. Yeah. I mean, like he, there were many times in the movie where I was just watching him like, yeah, this is exactly how I would be reacting in this situation. Uh, and like it, it, the, you know, the anger and frustration, I think he plays really well because it's not over the top. It's not, you know, um, he's just constantly like throwing rage fits. But like there's these individual moments, right? Like a few times in the movie where it does happen. Right. Uh, and he just has like these minor like. I mean, it's it's like what we've all felt, I think, where like we're, we're trying to bottle in so much um, yeah. for whatever reason. And then, you know, there are times when you just can't bottle. Right. You have to do something or scream, you know, shake your body, whatever, in order to get that rage out. And I think he he's really effective in those moments. I I like like the uh, some of the the softness that he has when he's with the kids. But also like that when I say that the movie resists melodrama, like this is the area that I was most worried about it being melodramatic, like it, it becoming some sort of like, I don't know, dead poet society like he changes the lives of these kids and they change his lives or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's not that right. Like it it feels realistic and it feels like, yeah, he, he comes to understand the community better because of his relationship with these kids. But at the end of the day, right? Like it's, it's not like, his life. He has to make his choices and he right. has to and, them. and he's still interested in getting those con- cochlear implants, right? Like the thought of not trying yeah. his hearing back, like never really, occurs to him despite the impact that these kids have clearly had on him despite the fact right that they have always been deaf and they don't consider it to be like a disability right like that's that's one of the interesting conversations that goes on particularly between him and paul racy 
um, is like, you know, should you want to like cure that? Like, is this some is deafness something to be cured? Um, even, you know, in, in somebody like Ruben's situation where he had his hearing, his career was based on hearing, you know, and, and then it suddenly went away still like, should he want to like cure that? Uh, or is it, you know, something to try and learn to live with, to strengthen yourself as a person. But anyway, I think that all of the emotional beats, he, he gives just the right, um, note to them. I guess he, again, he never feels like he's crossing the line. He never feels like he's going over the top. Um, I was, I believed his relationships with, um, with Lou, uh, you know, in, in their scenes together. And yeah, you know, like you said, Scott, he's, he's self-destructive behavior, but at the same time, like I felt for his character 100% the entire way. Like, and I think that speaks to something about his performance. Maybe it's just his charisma as an actor that like, um, you know, there were times when maybe you disagree with the choice he makes or whatever, but I, the whole time I was just like, I get it. And, you know, maybe some of that is again, what, my personal, you know, fear or whatever about hearing loss. But um, for, for that reason, I think that's a tough line to walk to, you know, portray this person where we still want the best for you. You're still the, you know, protagonist, whatever of the film, um, even when you are making choices that maybe we don't agree with um, behaving towards people that maybe we wouldn't behave that way. Um, I think that, we're also have never been in the situation that he's been in. And I think um, for someone who doesn't have hearing loss in real life, he, I think, portrays the emotions that somebody who, you know, does suddenly lose their hearing at this point in their life. And because, right, because there's no real explanation for it. There's no like answer to how he's going to get it back, whatever. It's just like, it, it's one of the most frustrating situations that someone could possibly imagine because you're just totally powerless. And, I think he grapples with that um, really well in the movie. And like I said, I was just electrified by his performance throughout the movie. And uh, I think it's absolutely worthy of Oscar and Oscar nomination, if not the win. Yeah. Look, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of movies and a lot of performances still up to see, but it certainly is in the conversation for me right now, at the very least for a nomination, right? Do I think that it's a lock for a nomination? Unfortunately not. I mean, Amazon's not the biggest pusher for its films in award season. And I think, you know, this is the kind of film with the director who is literally, I mean, literally nobody like it. I don't even know if he's made a feature length movie before. And they have one night in Miami, which is probably more of the awards movie that they're going to try to push. Yeah, definitely. I think definitely for more awards, cat like more of the, the prominent awards categories for sure. Cause you have all those performances, you know, Regina King as well in the director's chair. So a lot of, a lot of things to push there, but, I feel like for Sound of Metal, for me, it's just like this. It's all it, it is. It is somehow all about this performance, but also not really all about this performance. It's this weird dichotomy of like it, this movie is nothing without Riz Ahmed, but Riz Ahmed's performance isn't really anything without the context of the movie. And so it's just this really symbiotic relationship. I feel like between the actor and you know the character, the actor and the character, and the film, right? The setting of the film, the context of the film and the story overall. And, and that's just, for me, that's weirdly something that I doesn't, I just don't feel like always hits, hits right. You know what I mean? Like that, you, you know, we watch however many movies we watch and however many movies we review every single year. Like, I feel like that relationship between a character and its particular story doesn't come along as often as you think it would in films. And there's just something about this performance. that just feels like it's a perfect fit 
with it. Like I said, I mean, he clearly put a lot into this performance. You know, I think he worked. I'm forgetting which drummer he worked with. I think I wasn't Metallica's drummer or something like that. I don't know. He worked with Lars some. Ulrich. Yeah, maybe not Lars Ulrich. I don't think it was Lars Ulrich, but he worked with a, a pretty famous um, rock or, or punk rock or metal drummer. And, you know, to, to perfect the skill, because, look, I wouldn't say the concert scenes are are very robust in this film. It's not what it's about, but it's still, you know, he still went the extra mile to learn the authentic portrayal of that type of performance, even if he only gives it for, you know, a couple minutes over the course of the movie as a whole. And then the sign language piece, right? Like learning ASL, spending all the time he did with these kids. Like it's a it's a passionate performance from someone um, who, frankly, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what about his personal life. Right. But like doesn't have a reason to want to necessarily spend all this time learning these particular things. And look, I, I don't think that it's necessary to and we see it. We see it all the time. It's not necessary to immerse yourself like this into the rules that that you're portraying. But when you do, you get this kind of result. And this kind of result is something that feels really special. Like I said, from the moment it starts, from that moment where the screen pans in and, and he's just sitting behind the drums, you know, watching Lou for the cues and whatnot. And, you know, sweats kind of pouring off of him, you know, from this gig that they're playing. And you can just kind of like feel the, the rage and frustration in this character, like before anything bad happens to him in the movie. And it then explains, I think pretty clearly why you're, you know, the, those, those flashes or moments or however you want to describe them of the rage bubbling over. Like he's a, he's an angry person who I think I read some review I can't remember who it was where like this, this person is, you know, lives a mile a minute. And I think that's like a really accurate way to describe how he goes about his life. And that, that mile per minute lifestyle is just so filled with whatever particular moment he's in, you know, at that time. And he's just filled with it. Right. It's so it's probably what made him like started him being an addict and it's how also he's managed to live his sobriety. And I think that that's just a really interesting context for someone who then is plunged into a world that's entirely new and he has to choose whether to adapt or to resist and it's not one or the other always right he adapts somewhat but he resists at the same time like he still wants these cochlear implants he still wants to go back and find lou and start you know the band and restart the band and get his you know get his rv back at you know the particular point in the film and that, to me, just speaks so perfectly to this character. And, that, and that's the character aspect. And Riz Ahmed's performance, it, like, it, I don't know what else there is to say other than, like, he just nails it. He just nails every aspect of it. I think he nails the 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 mannerisms of this character. He nails the way he delivers, you know, or the way he he speaks, the way he delivers the things that he says, like the the frustration and, the, and like, the bursts of, like, frenetic energy in the way that he talks right the frustration but also again like the softness at the same time when he's playing with these kids you know the the movie moves moves pretty fast i feel like at times especially after you know the classroom is introduced and the kids are introduced you know it jumps from this moment where he you know he's being introduced on the first day to this moment where he's like learned some asl and he spent some time with these kids and he's playing with them in the field and and having these like really beautiful moments with them and but the movie reminds you that like that's not his life though that's like, that is that is him adapting at times but ultimately he's still someone who resists more than he adapts at least over the course of the film right the film leaves you on a note that might speak a slightly different story or it might speak to a different future for him but that is his life as he's lived it you know up until the end of the movie and Riz Ahmed like feels fully lived in that character and it's it's really special yeah couldn't agree more 
Yeah. So there's two main supporting. There are a few others if you want to talk about them. But the two main supporting performances are Olivia Cook, who plays Lou, which is you know the singer girlfriend of Ruben Riz Ahmed's character, and Paul Racy, who plays the head, plays Joe, who is the head of this deaf community that Ruben lives in for a while as he adapts and resists, as I mentioned, to his new found deafness. And Scott, I'll let you decide who you want to go to first, but where would you like to point? Look, I think I've said my piece. I think they're both great. I think Paul Racy is such a great contrast to yep. Islam Ed's character for the reason that you're talking about, right? Like the, uh, he's, he, uh, Ruben is a frenetic character. You know, he's prone to bursts of anger, stuff like that. You know, he's very resistant to the idea of becoming part of this community at the very beginning. Whereas, you know, Paul Racy's character, Joe, he's lived in this community his whole life. He's, uh, I can't remember if they say or not, but like he's, I think he's always been deaf. Well, anyway, with that, he's obviously, you know, had it for many years. And with that, he's established this sort of Zen-like complacency with his situation. A uh, bomb went off next to him in, in the Vietnam War. That's the right. story. That uh, yeah. right, 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 right. And because of that, I think he's a great counterpoint to, um, you know, to to Ruben. And, uh, you know, I understand he's frustrating to Ruben because of his, because he's ex- he's so accepting of his hearing loss, right, of his yeah. deafness. And that's something that Ruben just cannot get behind because he sees this as like a part of him that he has to fix a time period in his life. And not as this is my, the rest of my future. Like this is just a bump in the road basically is kind of how uh, he sees it. And um, Joe, that's obviously not the same situation for Joe. So I think that the push pull that they have in various scenes is um, really interesting. And in particular, sort of their climactic conversation uh, after Ruben, has decided, you know, he's made this big decision in the film for, you know, don't want to spoil it, but he's made his big decision in the film. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure where that conversation was going to go, but I felt like it went to the exact right place. And uh, I, I thought Paul Racy was very effective for someone who like, you know, he's been a TV actor and stuff, but like he doesn't really have any movies on his filmography except for this. Um, and I mean, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, that's a shame because he's uh, he's obviously has a lot of talent. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the thing that impresses me the most about this performance is exactly what you were saying, sort of the compliment to this, you know, this character of Ruben who looked like it, it, it feels like and you really feel it. I think you really feel like Joe understands the way that Ruben is feeling that like maybe this even not- at one point he felt the same way right but he's just very, this, this is not, yeah this is not the first person like in Ruben's situation that he's had to deal with before yeah absolutely and this and this notion of resisting i think is, is is something that feels really intimately familiar and you know something that joe can be empathetic towards and it's just like all he can do i guess is to lay out these like principles and these notions that he and his community live by and say like this is the way that in all of my experience over the last 40 years or what, you know, whatever the number is, how it's something that, that they, that he has to live by if he wants to be able to move forward with his life in, in this particular direction, which he finds himself facing, I think. And I find that just to be a really powerful performance. Cause it's something that's like, 
it's super it's a super empathetic performance it's a very understanding performance but at the same time it is a performance that's really grounded again in these like principles that he lays out for his community and he sticks to those you know steadfastly and he refuses to give an inch on them because he doesn't want to endanger you know the mental health or the stability of everyone else you know under his care if you want to put it that way right that, that he's responsible for because of you know one person who has this different perspective on life than the rest of these people do and i think that that's really powerful right like he doesn't get upset with ruben he doesn't yell at him he just says you know i i want you to feel the way that i do but there's nothing i can do to make you feel that way um and that particular scene that you're talking about the sort of the final scene with joe uh, between joe and ruben like like i'll go ahead and spoil like that's my favorite scene in the movie it's just such a powerful scene and as good as ahmed is as ruben throughout the whole movie it's like that is the time for paul racy's character to i think to really shine i think you get bits and pieces of that throughout the entire film when he's when he's on the screen and it really delivers in the in that particular scene in that particular moment and a scene that you know i think it definitely falls in the in the category of you know beautiful scenes and talk about like sad scenes devastatingly sad scene as well to understand that you know maybe Ruben didn't fully consider the consequences of what he was doing and he now has to live with that decision that he can't change right like at that point there's nothing he can do to change that like sure maybe he can go through you know the next whatever's left of the movie and live the experiences he's about to live and come back and realize that he made a mistake and you know I no longer feel like I have to correct this and I want to live the way that it is. but that's not what we're in that's not the moment that we're in right now and that conversation between the two of them is just really special. I think really fantastic scene as for Olivia cook. Look, I don't think, I think that she has, she's ultimately, I think she's overshadowed in this movie, which is not a, 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 you know, diss against her performance. But I think that they're like every, it seems like every scene she's in, she's sort of just towered over by these two. I mean, she's not really that on the screen that much with Paul Racy's character, but with Riz Ahmed, it's just, I feel like everything that he's doing is just so, resonant with at least with me right and you know there's this moment you know at the end of the film where they're having she, she and and you know i guess ruben and lou are having this conversation and i won't say what they're talking about because i don't want to spoil anything but you just feel like wow just like everything in this scene is just exactly how i picture it going right like his like sure his response could have been a different direction it could have gone however you wanted to but like this is like it feels right like this is what it feels like he, he's someone who has like gone through a lot and been through a lot and wants this very specific thing, but also this person who like deeply respects and loves the person that he's talking to. And I, I it just felt like a maturity in his character that it's not, I mean, you can even juxtapose it to the beginning of the movie, right? Like you can juxtapose it to the beginning of the movie where, you know, she and him are having this like fight, right? Like as she's leaving, I don't know where she's going, but like, I guess she's like leaving to go to some sort of rehab facility herself. Something like that. It's not immediately clear. Uh, exactly where she's going to, but it sounds like she's going to get some help herself. And he's like begging her not to go right. Like, and wants to create this plan to get back together that he then sticks to over the course of the movie. Um, and going from that to that, to that moment in the future. And the difference is with Olivia cook's character. You're like, you're not getting the inter like the interstitial performance to understand like the arc, right. The trajectory of that character. And yet it feels right. Like it, it, you feel like whatever months have passed or weeks have passed, whatever it is between these two, like she has grown in a similar way. So the performance you're getting from her, at the end of the movie is not the same as you get at the beginning and you feel that and you understand it. And she does a really good job conveying that. And I feel like that end 
you know, the final few scenes that we get of her are the ones where she has to really shine. Um, but she's, a, you know, she too feels like a really lived in character. And, you know, and I think that's a really interesting thing for someone who you get probably 20, 25 minutes of in this movie. Um, again, it feels like a lived in character. It feels like a character that even though it's off screen for most of the film has had an arc that you haven't seen, but has had an arc. And that's delivered really well and really believably. And all three performances are really good. Yeah, I, I, I don't feel like she gets overshadowed. I, I, I'm actually, I think it's amazing that with as strong as Riz Ahmed is that neither her or Paul Racy do get overshadowed. Like, I think they're, they yeah. both uh, come across really strongly. And yeah, I, I like her character also as a sort of counterpoint because she comes from a different lifestyle, right? She comes yeah. from an affluent background. And, um, you know, when the movie opens, they're obviously like they're out on the road. They've been playing together for a long time to have this relationship. She's clearly immersed in that lifestyle. But all of a sudden when she is left out in the cold, right? Because Ruben's hearing loss means, you know, her life, life is getting upended as well. Um, even if, you know, physically it's not happening to her as well. Um, you know, she has to decide what she's going to do next. And she goes back home and, you know, in diving back into that, cushy lifestyle she seems to have um living with her father right like she starts to um to think to, to reassess her relationship with Ruben I guess whereas Ruben right like he's never known anything really different than this life that they live together and that has been his everything and um and so when those two competing ideals come to a head and and clash in that you know in their final scene together um again it's it's, it's it comes across as very profoundly sad just because you know, he gets the cochlear implants, whatever. He thinks that's going to make everything better. That doesn't happen. But still, he thinks, oh, I can be with Lou and that will make everything, you know, okay, more or less. We can we can still try to work through it and get back to the life that we had. And, you know, he meets up with Lou and sees that she's kind of moved on. Um, and uh, she's, you know, doing her own thing now. And so it's just like this doubly crushing blow to him. that um, He's able to, quote unquote, you know, overcome his hearing loss and get a, out of this community. But, um, you know, the result of, of that decision of that choice by him is maybe even more devastating than if he had, you know, stayed there and learned to live with his disability. Yeah, look, I think we kind of jumped the gun and talked about this relationship. It, it's such a key part of the movie, I think. So it's not surprising that we went there when we're talking about these characters. But look, I, I think that you're right. I think that he you know, it is devastatingly sad and, and not to bring up, you know, normal people again, but like the ins, like, again, not the very, very last scene, but that scene that you're talking about, the, the conversation between the two of them, like that reminded me profoundly of I'll that. Stay final and scene. I'll go. Yeah. Yeah. Of the final scene of, of normal people. I mean, look, like the context of those conversations are so profoundly different. Uh, like what, what happens leading up to those conversations is so different across those two, uh, you know, one one limited series, one film here that we're talking about. But the impact and the profound sadness of it felt devastatingly similar, I think. And look, they, I, you know, I guess to spoil it a little bit, like they kind of end on the same note, right? They, and everyone goes their separate ways. And I yeah, think that there's, I think the difference for me is like with normal people, I think I felt like there was still a sense that somewhere down the line, there's still a chance for these two people. 
Whereas yeah, with maybe. This, it's like feels pretty I, fun. But. Yeah, I think that's a matter of opinion. Um, yeah. In terms of like how you can interpret what their future, like who these people are and normal people and what their future holds. Right? Like, can they really stay away from each other ultimately? Who, who knows? Um, but yeah, for here, it, there is a sense of finality, I think, for sure, that you're talking about. And, you know, it's it's powerful, right? Like it, for a relationship that, again, is only on this, like only, of course, it's it's present the whole time. It's what drives this character forward. But for something, for a relationship that you only get to see on screen in a pretty limited capacity, look, it, it, it drives the entire movie forward and, and it, it it delivers you to, to, the, to your destination, you know, whether you like it or not. And I find that to be really powerful because I, I think there's very few movies whose like central, you know, romantic relationship. I'll put that in, qu in quotation marks there for, for everyone, but that really, you know, delivers from start to finish in a way that, you know, even if it's brutal, you know, devastatingly sad, like we've been talking about, it still feels authentic and real and raw um not many not many stories can really deliver on that i feel like so it's really special that this one can too uh, you know in the context of everything else that's going on yeah totally all right scott let's talk about the sound design we talked about it a little bit already but you know this feel I, you know i mentioned that this, this film would be nothing without riz Ahmed's central performance but i also kind of think this film wouldn't have nearly the same impact uh, or, you know, delivery of its the themes and scenes and climactic moments, if not for that sound design that we've been talking a little bit about already. Do you feel the same way or do you think I'm over hyping it a little bit? No, not at all. I think uh, I think you're right on and that, you know, it it hits the various extremes really well, right? Like the yeah. intense, like immersive walls of sound that you have when they're like playing, uh, you know, they're concerts when they're still in the band whatever contrasted with like you know this movie is not afraid to have like long patches of just silence right um where there's no music there's no you know people talking whatever um you know they, they're really trying to immerse you again in in the in the shoes of somebody who's in this position and then you know i think that when he gets the cochlear implants like that just takes on a whole new level of like again of immersion right of um showing you the the consequences of um his decision like it just wouldn't be the same right if if we weren't able to hear what he is hearing as part of the um the you know when he when he gets the cochlear implants and yeah. you know my favorite scene to spoil it to get ahead of ourselves whatever <laughs> the scene where it really kicks in yeah. is when he sees her singing, right? He goes back home to Lou's, uh, to, you know, he goes to visit Lou and there's this scene where they've had a party at Lou's house and Lou goes to the piano with her father to start singing a um, French song, I believe it is. And um, the moment she starts singing, you know, she sings beautifully. Um, but what he hears is is like, not is something not appealing at all right it's it's garbled it's uh has it there's a lot of feedback it's screechy um and that is kind of the the, the moment in the movie where it all comes washing over him that like it's never going to be the same right because you know if you know talking to people whatever that not sounding right is one thing but like music the thing which you know defined him and which um you know was the thing that kept him and lou together honestly um, their, you know, their band and everything. He can never, he's never going to be able to hear music the same way again and know what good music sounds like, whatever. Um, and that was a scene that really, just, I mean, that was the most crushing scene in the movie to me. 
And the sound design is a huge reason why, right? Because it's cutting back and forth, right? Perfectly, perfectly letting you hear what she actually sounds like with what he is hearing. So you see like the stark contrast and um, how much worse it sounds from his perspective. Whereas she's actually, you know, singing beautifully to everyone else. And that was, that was brutal. That was a brutal scene to watch, but in a good way. Yeah. I, I really find it special when you have these scenes that sort of show you the perspective from both from multiple parties, I guess, in the moment, mm -hmm. whether that's some sort of like, you know, behind the camera omniscient observer, you know, in these scenes and in the community where everyone is deaf, right. But you get to hear the noises themselves and what's going on. I, I find those scenes, especially when you in the middle of that same scene, it flips maybe to Ruben's perspective, usually his auditory perspective and gives you both shots, right? Like one of the, I think one of the most powerful ones, oddly enough, is the one where he's outside on the, on the metal slide with the kid from the class and they're, playing drums together basically and the scene for the most part starts with Ruben's perspective where you just hear like the thump of the of essentially the bass right of the drums that they're doing back and forth to each other and then right at the end of the scene it, it flips over to sort of that omniscient perspective where you hear things you know as if you had your normal hearing capacity and what you really it's just these light little taps it's just these light little taps and I found that just really striking same goes for the dinner like whenever they're having dinner or having a meal in, in the community where you have all these like again thumps on the table this sort of like jovial facial responses the the laughter etc and then it, it flits over to that omniscient perspective and it's just like a really loud dinner table with no words or noises really whatsoever and it's this really it, it's a really interesting juxtaposition and, and i think it it makes you think about everything that's happening and the sound of everything that's happening in the movie and how you know, someone who's going through what Ruben's going through sort of experiences the world compared to how we would experience the world. And frankly, the movie doesn't have that impact if the whole time you're just hearing everything everyone's saying and you're getting subtitled sign language or whatever. Like, I mean, it, it does that part of the movie anyway, but um, it's just not the same, right? Like you just don't, I don't even think you'd have any of the emotional impact. Like I, I'd go as far to say this is a subpart movie without that audio design, like great performances, but like what is the movie really doing besides this sort of like very standard sort of dramatic dramatic walkthrough without the sound design and making you really feel everything that Ruben's feeling like makes you feel what, what this community is feeling. And it just feels very minimal without it. Yeah. And I mean, even in that party scene, like earlier, right when he's like walking yeah. the crowd, like the, the radio it, way. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's overwhelming. And like, yeah, uh, totally. It's, you know, really tough to listen to. And, you know, it makes you, it makes Ruben like long almost for that silence. Yeah that he had when he was, which is what makes that last, you know, very last moment of the movie. So perfect. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, so I, I think, I think you're right. Like if we weren't able to experience that, then we wouldn't understand a lot about his performance and um, you know, where the direction the movie goes. In. Yeah, absolutely. I think, look, I, honestly, the only other thing that I had written on my list was to talk about, his, you know, Ruben's arc in particular and his relationship with Lou. I think we've covered the relationship with Lou part. I don't really know. I don't really have anything else to say personally other than I really like how that ended, right? This sort of journey to reunite with her and realizing that both of them, as you know, Lou and Ruben have just become different people in the short time that they've spent apart and the new lives they've found themselves living. But Ruben's arc, I think, is also 
one that we've spent a little bit of time talking about. I just want to make sure that you don't have anything else you want to add because right, obviously Lou is a huge part of that. The relationship with Lou is a huge part of that, but there's other parts of it too. So I just wanted to stop, check in and see if there's anything else you'd like to add before we do enter our wrap up phase. No, I mean, I, look, I think it's very, again, it's very believable. It's, it's very realistic. Like it makes you think about the way the general public like views the deaf community, right? Like, um, like, yeah, because that's the perspective that, Ruben is coming from almost from the the entire movie, even after he has literally lost his hearing, even after he's spent with these people, um, you know, he still sees it as this is something, this is just like a hurdle in the road that I need to get past so I can get back to my normal life. Like he, he doesn't think about being part of that community, trying to figure out a way as being like a productive or satisfying way to live. And yeah, you know, that's probably how a lot of people view the deaf, com- deaf community um, who have been a part of it. And, um, so for that reason, I think the movie is very empathetic and, um, yeah, again, that last conversation between Joe and Ruben, I think is really opening to the way that these people probably a, a lot of these people feel about their condition and their lifestyle, just, just as anyone with any sort of disability, physical disability, intellectual disability, whatever, I feel like, you know, does it, that community often will look at it as, Hey, this is not a crutch. This is not, you know, something to be ashamed of. This is just who I am. Um, but still seeing that from the perspective of this specific community, I think is interesting. There's, if you go on letterbox, Scott and read some top reviews for this movie, there's a few deaf people who have like weighed in on it and, you know, talked about how incredibly effective and evocative it is in portraying, you know, their everyday life, their, you know, views on their own condition. And yeah. uh, so the movie got it right and is very authentic from that perspective. I, and that comes across even to someone who doesn't know a lot about the deaf community like me. Yeah. I mean, the film looks like it's trying to really show that that experience, that portrayal, like the agenda of this film, if you will, doesn't really, there, there is no, there is none, right? Like it's trying to tell a, a you know, a pure, raw, authentic story and I don't think it's really trying to do much else, right? Like it's just trying to show Ruben's story. And and that sounds like really plain and really basic. But again, like I just don't think that many movies actually are able to deliver on that very basic premise of like just trying to tell the story it's telling. And I found that to be, you know, really um obvious almost. I don't know, really just prevalence movie. Like this movie just wanted to tell the story it was telling. And it did that in the best ways it could and knew how to do. And that was be authentic to that, you know, deaf experience, the deaf community. All right, Scott. Well, I think we, I mean, we've already talked about our favorite scenes, but we'll mention them again for anyone who might've missed them. Go ahead. Yeah. The musical, the singing scene reminded me of the last scene of Phoenix. I don't want to spoil Phoenix because I know Scott hasn't seen it, but um, reminds me of the last scene of Phoenix a little bit, but obviously with the added perspective of him with these cochlear implants now. And yeah, this is the moment where it really kicks in that, nothing is ever going to be the same. And, you know, not being able to hear like one of the, like one of the most beautiful sounds you could possibly think of, like her singing this French song or whatever, what it comes out to, you know? Yeah. Again, it makes you long for the silence. It makes you think, Hey, this was actually maybe a huge mistake that I just made because I'm not going to get my life back. I'm not going to be able to be with Lou and I'm not going to be able to hear things the same way that I heard thing. And, heard things and so that I, that was again the moment that sat the strongest with me and 
was the most emotionally affecting to me, even though there are plenty of those in the movie. Yeah, and I think you get you get the first hints of that. Just to talk about like a through line of a performance. You get the first hints of that as soon as he gets those cochlear implants activated, right? Like there's this sort of like dumbfounded look on his face when he realizes that they don't make you hear sound the way that you were hearing it when you could use, you know, your ears, right? The way, you know, with the with the oral nerve. I can't remember what the nerves are. I learned it at one point in neuroscience, but whatever. Um, but like when it has to bypass you know, the ear and use the cochlear implants, it doesn't sound the same. And as soon as, you know, the first time he realizes that in the doctor's office afterwards, you get the hint of that. And then it, it fully delivers in that scene. I think you're absolutely right. For me, I mentioned it already. It's the scene between the final scene between Ruben and Joe. So Riz Ahmed and, and Paul Racy's characters in just something about that whole conversation. It just feels so pure in a way from like both sides. And, not necessarily pure in a gratifying sense in every sense of the word, but pure as in like, I believe that this conversation happened would happen exactly in this way from these two characters. And just something again, really sad about this whole side of the conversation where, you know, Ruben is asking for money to buy, you know, put his life back together. because he spent everything that he has on these cochlear implants and Joe being like, I don't know what position you put yourself in but you sound like an addict, which is exactly what he's been trying to run away from, you know, for ever since he started losing his hearing. And there was this threat of, you know, hurtling himself into this void of addiction again. And I found that just really brutally sad. Again, maybe a common theme of this movie, just really sad moment where you realize all this progress that it seems like he's been making, trying to adapt, right? Like it, it, it's, that's been on the surface. That's not what he's lived. Right, that's not how he's fe felt moment to moment, and you've seen that right in these like scenes where he's waking up at five a.m. and meditating, I guess, for the lack of a better word, in that room. And the first time he does it, he's just like full of rage. Right, he slams the donut over and over again on the table, puts it back together, slams it again. And I found that to be really, again, really powerful moments where you realize, again, like some of these some of these shared moments you see with other people in the community. It's not it's not how he's feeling inside and. Um, I think you see those feelings inside really come out to the front in that conversation with Joe and Joe's response just felt exactly right for that character. And Paul Racy's performance was right. Kind of at the, at, at its pinnacle in that scene. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving sound of metal? 9.4 Scott, this movie's excellent. Um, you know, sometimes I think we've talked a lot about how, tough the movie is to watch at times. And, you know, there's movies like that sometimes that I think I'll knock them down a few, a few, you know, points or something maybe because they don't have that rewatch value. Like Marriage Story was an example last year of a movie like that, even though I have watched, I have rewatched Marriage Story. But, um, but I think this movie is just so different from anything that I've seen in a long time. And uh, I just felt really enriched after watching it that, despite how tough it is to watch, I still have been thinking about rewatching it, honestly, almost ever since I uh, watched it for the first time. And so I think that speaks a lot to how great it is and definitely one of the best of 2020. So 9.4 out of 10. Can't wait for the criterion collection of this one. Hopefully uh, 9.3. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. 9.3 out of 10. This is an amazing film. Best film of the year so far for me, but Scott has seen quite a few more of the awards contender type movies than I have. Yeah. So, We'll see how that shakes out over the rest of the year. All right, Scott, I think that should do it for our review of Sound of Metal. When we come back, we'll be talking about Disney's Investor Day uh, presentation, which 
Uh, we won't be covering all the announcements because we literally we'd be here until next week talking about all the announcements. But we'll talk about a few of them. And then we'll also be talking about the first awards handed out this year at the Boston Society of Film Critics Awards. That's right. My hometown. Well, not, not my hometown, but where I currently live. They gave out their awards this this weekend. We'll talk about those and we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as I mentioned before the break, there were a lot of announcements, to say the least, about at Disney's Investor Day this past week, where they announced it felt like about a million new projects across Star Wars and the MCU and even Pixar. I got that Chris Evans playing the original Buzz Lightyear, not the action figure Buzz Lightyear, as it had to be Don't get me started on that. That was <laughs> weird as heck. <laughs> yeah, but I think there are some other big announcements, and I'll try to keep them more movie focused. I mean, there's a lot of TV show uh, focused ones for sure. I mean, that, that seems to be the major push. I think that's the key takeaway. The major push, it seems like over the next three, four years of content is that, yeah, sure, there's going to be stuff coming out in movies that they talked about before, but they really are ramping up that Disney Plus content to make it, you know, worth worth your money, especially since they're upping the price soon as well by a dollar. I, I think it's in March that they're going to up the price a dollar to reflect their additional investment in content. I don't know where that content is and when it's going to release, but more investment in content, nevertheless, I suppose. But I want to do start with a TV show property first, at least before we talk about some of the movie stuff. And that is the big news that the Obi-Wan series, which I mean, look, they officially announced it last year, I think at D23, right? Or something like whatever, or Star Wars Celebration. I can't remember when they officially announced it. One of those shows. I don't think there was a D23 last year, so it must have been Celebration. Um, that the Obi-Wan series is happening. It then, I think, got delayed since then when they originally announced it. But what we do know, as of uh, this Disney investor last week, is that Hayden Christensen will be returning at least to voice Darth Vader in this Obi-Wan series. Scott, this was, I mean, easy to say, like, this is pretty big news that Hayden Christensen is returning to the role of Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader after he's, you know, mostly been pretty horribly panned uh, by critics for that particular performance, at least certain aspects of it, Scott. So how do you feel about this? Do you think this is a good move is this a move that i don't even know how it happened like i don't know what are your thoughts look i love a good redemption arc however i'm not sure that this one needed to happen or is going to happen um because you know i look back at everything that i like about the prequels and like if i had to make a list his performance might be the number one thing on there uh you know this is the most important character i've said this before in our star wars series. This is the most important character. In many ways, the prequel trilogy is entirely about his arc and his transition from, you know, Pod Racer to the Sith Lord Darth Vader. And he bumps it. Um, and so I'm very trepidatious about it, especially because, like, this is probably of all the Star Wars movies that got announced, this is the one that I'm most intrigued about seeing because. The story is actually something that, like, I have wondered about for a while, right? Like the what happened with Obi Wan in between when we see the end of Episode Three of Revenge of the Sith, and um, you know, obviously when he's a lot older, um, when we get to Episode Four, when we get to A New Hope, and there's all you know, there's the kind of tease with Yoda that happened at the end at the end of Revenge of the Sith, talking about, oh, I can show you things 
with the force that you st- you know you don't know how to do yet, whatever. Maybe contact the dead, contact Qui Gon, something like that. Even um, and you know we just ha- we've never had any sort of con- maybe there's there's probably some books out there or something I don't know, but we've never really had much in the Star Wars universe um, that has actually you know tried to put that story together um, like this show is seemingly going to do. Um, but uh, yeah, with Hayden Christensen there. Even if it's just a voice performance, particularly it, if it's a voice performance, because that was the like yeah. his delivery yeah. of lines was one of the worst things like, about the, the guy. Like, just does not even act anymore, right? Like, it's it's not like oh well, he's redeemed himself a lot. Like he had one, he has a great movie called Shattered Glass, that, but that was like the early two thousands. Um, and like it's been the last thing I remember him being in was this awful movie called Little Italy with him and Emma Roberts that. I, I mean, I never saw it, but it was on how did this get made? Like, you know, very panned movie. Like he he doesn't work anymore. Like, and so the fact that they're bringing him back for something of this magnitude is, I'm very. Yeah, he's done very few movies over the last uh, few what handful of years, decade even. You could probably count them on one or two hands since Revenge of the Sith, and. Yeah, he did that. Like, I think the only other thing I've seen of his since Revenge of the Sith is that Jumper movie where he played the lead character. It was fine. He probably was better in that than he was in as Anakin or Darth Vader, but that's not saying very much. So I'm also very trepidatious about this. I, I don't know why you can't just have James Earl Jones do this voice role. I don't know. Maybe it's cheaper to get Hayden Christensen. I don't even know. But. <laughs> I uh, like it's very confusing, honestly. I, I, I get the continuity, I guess, in terms of you know, particularly Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen having coming from the you know, coming from the prequels going in to the series. I get that, but like, do you need it? Why? Like it wasn't good. And everyone knows that it wasn't good. Right. right. Like I don't even think Dave Filoni would probably stand up for the performance. I don't know. But um look, I I think it's a weird I, I really do frankly think it's a really weird choice. I think even recasting it as a different person, if you didn't want to do James Earl Jones would have been a better move, but it is what it is, I guess. And look, we'll, we'll see if he redeems himself, but even if he d- gives a good performance, like he, he's, he can't redeem his terrible, terrible performance from yeah. episodes two and three with a, you know, a, a limited series voice role as Darth Vader. Like there's nothing that look, James Earl Jones is iconic, but not because it's like this deeply nuanced voice role that he gives. It's just, it's an iconic voice. <laughs> like that's why it's, it has nothing to do with the performance. Um, and so I, this seems like a dead end street for, for this particular role. And, and Hayden Christensen, I, I don't know why he's doing this. He, he's just doing this and he's going to get absolutely just destroyed again. Like honest to God, like he's just, it's just going to bring up, everything that people haven't been able to forget over the last 15 years. So yeah. I don't know why. It's weird it's because people actually like the general audience seems to have goodwill towards star Wars now because of how the Mandalorian has been going this season. So it's, it's a weird choice to try and, you know, bring something into yeah. the, like if you're, if you're going to do, <laughs> if you're going to do something with star Wars, that is controversial and that people have pain past, but you're going to go for it anyway. Do the freaking Ryan Johnson trilogy of films. Don't do this crap. Yeah, that costs them a lot more money and a lot more goodwill probably than this crap. Well, I mean, look, because like, honestly, look, like realistically, what, like, what is this role going to be? It's going to be like an epic, like, like Darth Vader is not going to be a major character. in this. Like, there's just no way yeah. he's going to be a major character in this Obi-Wan series. So look, it's like probably ultimately a minor role. It's silly that they have Hayden Christian doing the voice for this. Like, it really is silly. 
anyway, we can we can move on from that, Scott. I do want to talk about a couple movie related things. One of them is that Patty Jenkins, director of Wonder Woman and you know soon to be released Wonder Woman 1984, is going to be directing a Star Wars movie called Rogue Squadron in the future. And you know, personally, I felt this was like pretty big news, Scott. I don't think a female has directed a Star Wars movie before. Obviously, we have female directors of Star of episodes of Star Wars TV shows already, and we're gonna have the whole. Because I believe the whole Obi-Wan series is still being directed by, or is that Rick Famuyiwa who's doing the Obi-Wan series? I think I so. Yeah. I think then isn't then Andor, the casting Andor series, that's being directed by a, fe- a by a woman, right? Yeah, it's, um, what's her I, name? I'm, Deborah I'm, Chow, right? Yes, no, yeah. Chow she's doing Obi-Wan, I think. Deborah okay, Chow. she's doing Obi-Wan, and Rick Famuyiwa is doing Andor. I knew that they were they were doing one of they each, they were each doing one of the series, but yeah. So there's already these like episodes of The Mandalorian, and I'm sure Clone Wars as well that have been directed by women, but a woman has not yet directed a Star Wars movie. And so Patty Jenkins, you know, I don't know if she's had a movie cross a billion dollars yet, but you know, a, a person who makes you know large budget movies that are mass appeal and have made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, is going to be directing a Star Wars movie, Scott. And well, she made one. You know, but, well, two. I mean, you know, Wonder Woman eighty four would have done that, but sure, yeah, I'm fair, fair enough. I mean, it, ha- hasn't she made other movies that on the big budget that have? Wonder yeah. Woman was her first movie since Monster. I'm pretty sure. Which Monster was oh, like wow. three? So yeah, and all, I mean, yeah, I mean that was granted that won an Academy Award, but yeah, fair enough. Um, I didn't realize that. I don't know why I thought that that was her first. Okay, anyway, um. Cool. Anyway, so she made Wonder Woman, which made hundreds of millions of dollars. If and I don't think it broke a billion, but you know, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four was certainly on track to to do the same. And now she's doing Star Wars Rogue Squadron, which we're not going to see until twenty twenty three. But we know it's being made. Scott, how big of a deal do you think this is? Are you excited for this? I don't know if it's going to be based off the the game Star Wars Rogue Squadron, maybe a similar plot premise or something like that. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's it's cool. I mean, the Rogue Squadron. I don't, yeah, I don't know that too much about it either, but I mean, people in the Star Wars fan community I know were excited about this story being adapted from what I could tell. Um, Patty Jenkins, you know, for me, like, I liked Wonder Woman, didn't love it. Um, I Same. was excited about 84. Um, I'm, I mean, I will be excited. I am going to go see it here in a couple of weeks, but yeah. um, I don't know, like, how sold I am yet on her as a director. But again, I want to see female directors doing stuff big and small because, you know, female directors are putting out some of the best stuff right now over the past few years. And it's a new perspective of Star Wars that we haven't gotten for. So uh, I'm in favor of it. Um, I would have been more in favor of Karen Kuzama doing it, but that's just because I enjoy her. Like I, I um, have enjoyed some of her past films more than I have with Patty Jenkins, but you know, Patty Jenkins, obviously, there's a safety there. He has been entrusted with big, a big franchise and big property before and made a move that satisfied people and that, you know, for as tumultuous as the CEU has been in terms of reception by critics and audiences, Wonder Woman is kind of the one movie in there which is universally at least liked by, um, you know, people from the neutral audience to like actual hardcore fans of the property. Yeah, look, I think Patty Jenkins is a safe bet. I'll put that in quotation marks. At the same time, like, look, yes, she Wonder Woman was sort of like break a break back into the scene, but I mean, she did the pilot in the in a few episodes of The Killing, which uh, you know I'm a huge fan of, and I think you are as well. 
Scott. So she's definitely done some other things that aren't as big budget. And, and like you said, she did Monster, which I think won. That was the one Charlize Theron won for the Academy Award, right? So best actress, uh, yeah, yeah, best. I mean, yeah, yeah. Patty Jenkins didn't win the Academy Award, obviously, but um, yeah. So I, I look, I'm really excited about this. I think it's awesome. Rogue Squadron. I'm not familiar with it either, but it is a pretty popular and famous game in the Star Wars canon, I believe. So we'll see if they take the you know plot elements or, or context from that to help build out that film. And look, we'll see it in three years. <laughs> so it's going to be a while. Uh, and that's that on the MCU side of things on D on Disney's investor day, you know, they announced some updates and some scheduling confirmations for some of the, for some of the TV shows. I can't remember if it's on investor day, but WandaVision is coming out January 15th. It starts after that, I believe is going to be Falcon and the winter soldier. And then Loki. And I think they're really going to be trying to line them up, not necessarily back to back to back to back, but with only short breaks in between them, you know, this isn't, I guess this is an MCU, but we know the season three of the Mandalorian is happening. It's going to be coming out, you know, this time next year, keeping track with that production schedule that they've sort of been on pace with for the last two, two years and the first two seasons of the show. But back on the MCU side of things, we got some movie confirmations as well, right? We knew, you know, Christian Bale had long been rumored about playing the villain in Thor, Love and Thunder. That was confirmed. It was also confirmed that they will not be recasting Chadwick Bosman's Black Panther for Black Panther 2, even though it's already in production. So I think the story might take a little bit of a turn in that movie and might be rewritten to some extent to take into account the loss of Chadwick Bosman. And then we also, uh, I think, got confirmation of some other date changes, which I think is mostly just, you know, some MCU movies getting pushed back. I think Thor Love and Thunder is pushed back to sort of May of 2022, followed by Black Panther 2 in the summer and then Captain Marvel 2 in the winter, I think like the November time period for that. And I think besides that, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, I guess we did hear that Catherine Newton is, is playing Cassie in Ant-Man three, which honestly, God, th- th- this is probably the worst name for a film in the MCU. Ant-Man. Is it Ant-Man quantum mania? Is yeah. that Ant- Ant-Man and the Wasp colon quantum mania? Is it worse than Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness or whatever? I mean, I'm interested by what that title actually. Yeah, that's I mean, true. It could be bad. Quantum Mania just sounds silly. <laughs> look, look, that, that's the energy that Ant Man gives off. I think ultimately, so maybe it fits the franchise. And I, and I like the Ant Man movies well enough, but it just seems like really silly. That's just, it it's honestly Mania. like cynical of the MC. It's like them being like, we can call our movies whatever the heck you want, and they're still going to make a billion dollars. You're still going to go see it, you mindless consumers. You know? Yes. Well. I'll still I still stand by Avengers Endgame last year, not being more for just than the mindless consumer. But I, I take oh, your point. Of course, I mean, I take you know point. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, this wasn't on D- D- Disney's Investor Day though, but we can talk about it since it is MCU movie related. And that is, look, Scott, this is the way I phrase it to you: If you're a previous Spider Man, like what, whichever Spider Man movie you've been in, if you are not being cast in Spider in Spider Man Homecoming, you know Tom Holland Spider Man Three. You should fire your agent. Like literally everyone is in this movie. Alfred Molina was confirmed this past week to be returning as Dr. Octavius. We've already heard that Jamie Foxx is Electro. Um, I mean, I, have we heard that T- Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man is coming back? And, and Andrew Garfield. It's and all Andrew- confirmed, I think, that they're going to be appearing. Okay, so I think we haven't confirmed that Andrew Garfield is coming back. But we have confirmed that Tobey Maguire and is is it also MJ? So is it no? Is it oh? Is it Kristen, Kristen Dunst? Dunst? Yeah, yeah, Kristen Dunst coming back as well. I believe. I don't know if they'll be able to nab Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, but it seems like at least they probably get Andrew Garfield for that. And 
I think there's a couple other villains also from past movies confirmed, although I could be misremembering that. I've heard theories that like they're going to put together some sort of like Sinister Six and like some like multiverse movie where they have like Dr. You know, Dr. Octavius, uh, Doc Ock. They have Electro. They're going to have Mysterio come back because I think it's heavily implied at the end that he's like Quentin Beck's not actually dead. Yeah. Um, and then a couple and then piece together maybe a couple other villains, either um, the lizard from Amazing Spider-Man 1 and Green Goblin, either Harry or um, Norman from the original Spider-Man movie as well. And who knows? <laughs> maybe you'll get like Venom or whatever for Spider-Man 3 or freaking maybe Tom Hardy's in this movie. Who even knows? <laughs> who even knows? Um, it just seems all a bit all a bit wild to me. And like, I have no idea what the roles of these characters are going to be in this movie. But this, this I'm like worried for this film right now. I'm like really, really worried uh, for this movie unless it's going to be like six hours long. Scott, what, how do you feel about this news? Because I know how much you love Spider-Man 2 and, and Alfred yeah. Molina specifically. Right. Well, so, yeah, there's two sides. But the, the one side is what you're expressing, which I totally understand. Koi, Koi Jandrew had a tweet the other day that I retweeted, I think, of saying, oh, well, putting a lot of characters in a Spider-Man 3 has never, not once, ever been a problem. So I'm not worried, uh, obviously being sarcastic, because that was a huge issue with Raimi's third film. But uh, the other side, Scott, is that, you know, the first two Spider-Man, the first two Raimi Spider-Man movies are, you know, two of my favorite superhero movies of all time. Alfred Molina's Doc Ock, I think, is one of the greatest villain performances in, in any superhero movie. And Tobey Maguire, I mean, I, I love the guy as Spider-Man. He is still my Spider-Man. He always will be. And I guess the reaction is, I wish that this stuff hadn't been spoiled, right? Like, I wish that this hadn't come out because, like, if I had gone to see a Spider-Man movie, this Spider-Man movie, and Tobey Maguire and Alfred Molina had showed up in this, and Kirsten Dunst, and Kirsten Dunst too, if they had all of a sudden showed up in this movie, I would have lost my mind in the theater when that happened. Um, and now that's not going to happen uh, because I, I'm, I mean, I'm still going to go crazy probably when I see it uh, because those movies are just such a big part of my childhood. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It will probably be emotional to see that again on the big screen, but um now, theaters won't exist by summer 2022 okay. or whatever we uh, but i uh again I, I think the element of surprise would have made it even more special uh yeah. you know regardless of what their roles are going to be in this movie right because it could just be like a hey we're going to fly through this multiverse for a second it's going to yeah. be funny and we're going to wave hello to all of the past spider-man and stuff and that's going to be it it's like they're not actually going to be coming back as characters for, for real. But then, you know, there's also the angle that you're talking about, Scott, which is that, you know, this could be a whole new story arc with all of these villains teaming up and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, different Spider-Men teaming up as well, like we saw in the animated Spider-Man into the Spider-Man. Yeah. So. Look, will Shameik Moore be in this film? Yeah, I don't know. Will Nicolas Cage be in this film? Will Peter B. Parker be in this film? Yeah, I hope Nicholas Cage is in this movie. Yeah, I know, right? Spider Noir is what we need. Spider Man Noir, whatever his name is. That'll be fun. The MCU just needs Nicholas Cage, period, whatever character it is. That's true. Well, I think just to wrap up this point, and then let's switch over to the Boston Film Critics uh, or Society of Film Critics Awards. I don't want to misname them. I'm sure they get really offended by that. Um, I, I think that a lot of the speculation that I've heard around this movie is that it's building up to splinter Spider Man out of the MCU, basically. Um, or at least reset it right where Tom Holland's contract with Marvel only runs, you know, this one more movie and one non Spider-Man film in the MCU, which many people have assumed to be 
Doctor Strange 2 in the Multiverse of Madness or whatever. I don't think it has two in front of it or two in it, but whatever. Uh, the Doctor Strange film that seems to be weaving a pretty, I don't know, at this point, it just seems like this movie is just going like full multiverse, breaking breaking it open and bringing in a ton of new characters. And that, like that's how they're going to get a bunch of characters into this stuff. And I think that that is an interesting concept. And basically the idea that would be, it was, would be to splinter Tom Holland, Spider-Man off into this like universe of Spider-Man characters that Sony's playing, like whatever, whatever sandbox Sony's playing in with all their Spider-Man characters over here, like Venom, obviously, and all these other projects that we've been talking about, you know, into the Spider-Verse, whatever, right? Uh, all those characters and all those films. I think they want their Tom Holland Spider-Man back. I think that, that I'm trepidatious about that because Kevin Feige feels like a big responsibility for the success and the rejuvenation of the Spider-Man franchise after, look, not terrible films, but films that didn't quite hit on the level that they were hoping to hit on with Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. And it's interesting that that's what they do. And then maybe MCU casts a different Spider-Man or brings what Spider-Man and trades the Spider-Man. I don't know. I don't know what deal with the devil they worked out when that whole stuff was going down with Sony and the inclusion of Spider-Man in the MCU films. But we'll see when Spider-Man three comes out. We'll see. I guess the only other last thing I want to mention is that fantastic four is back. It's confirmed. They're making a fantastic four movie. That's huge uh-huh. news. If they're actually able to make a good movie, which no one has been able to be. I, I, I can't believe that no one has ever made a fantastic four film before. And this will be the first fantastic four film that has ever existed. You know, you would, you would think that such a notable property would have been adapted before, but Nope, this is going to be the first time. And man, I hope they're successful. with it. Yeah. Look, no track record whatsoever for how these movies work, but look, Kevin Feige, he hasn't put a step wrong. So yeah, I trust him. And John Watts has done a great job with the two Spider-Man movies. That's a great point. We did not talk about the fact that John Watts is going to be directing the um, the film, which we were all a little surprised by John Watts not directing the third Spider-Man movie. I guess this is why. I guess yeah. this was why. So that's really cool. All right, it's Scott. That's all I, all I want. Like, because the last one had a really great cast, but, you know, it, it didn't come through. But, like, you know, there's there's the, the talent out there right now in terms of young actors and actresses is right for the picking. So I, I yeah. want to you can so, just take all those new mutants actors and just port them straight over. And- I want to see some some names that I I want to see some of my favorites in this movie, I guess. As well. All right. Dreamcaster. Right now, Scott, do it. You've 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 thrown your cards on the table. So now you got to deliver. Calvin Harrison Jr. as Human Torch for sure. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I you put me on the spot. I don't know that I can come up with it. Like Haley Lou Richardson would probably be a pretty good Sue Storm, maybe. Um. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to. You think want Chris about. Evans as a uh, Mister Fantastic? No, I don't want Chris Evans to be in <laughs> more of these freaking movies. For- <laughs> yeah, who's going to be Mister Fantastic? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. The, the problem is, Scott, is that all the people that you're thinking of have already been in an MCU movie, probably. So <laughs> you have to re- almost think about I it multiple times. Have, but, but yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I'm sure you could cast Florence Pugh, or I mean, Saoirse Ronan, right? You could get Saoirse Ronan in there. She's not been in an MCU film. Yet. I don't know if I can see her in a superhero movie. But... Yeah, that's because you can only see her in one type of role. It's the only problem. Yeah. Joe anyway, Lawrence. well, yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll move on from that now. I'm sure everyone is thanking God that we're moving on past that at this point. So let's talk about your new story for the week, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so the Boston uh, Society of Film Critics, uh, one of the first uh, awards. I mean, I think first sort of awards of these type given out this year. Um, you know, they're not a huge predictor of the Oscars or anything like that. So it probably won't be like, uh, you know, the, these, these uh, results may not mean that much in the long run for chances for certain things, but 
it's they're pretty good predictors of nominations though the winners yeah. are usually nominated it's still interesting to see how things are playing out here you know one thing to note right off the bat nomad land winning best picture it is the the front runner for best picture at the oscar still at this point and chloe Zhao winning best director right with kelly reichert for first cow being the backup so like we saw with the uh the gotham awards female directors dominating so far in the early stages of of award season now i do think that will change when we get deeper and people like david fincher and um david fincher was eligible for this but yeah but i mean i think i think that's more up the oscars alley um that mank is but um that's for sure yeah but i uh you know so that so that's cool to see obviously and in the act category some really interesting names to see down here paul racy who we talked about Scott, just on this episode for sound of metal winning best supporting actor i don't know that he really has that much of a shot at an oscar i mean that i thought of him in that uh light even after seeing this movie but you know maybe this will help him gain some traction um as award season goes on um in the best supporting actress category Ya jung yoon from minari i think i think i previously had incorrectly stated that that was the actress who played the mother it's the grandmother uh, which i was surprised that she had gotten nominated but because she's nominated at the gothams also but no, it is the grandmother, which I understand more because the grandmother is great and she's great in the role. So she won the Best Supporting Actress with Amanda Seyfried coming runner-up for Mank. Um, and then uh, for for you know the the main acting categories, Anthony Hopkins, right? He's one of the top choices for Best Actor Oscars uh, for the Father, and he won here um, with Riz Ahmed, uh, you know our favorite from Sound of Metal, coming in second. Uh, and then in the best act, actor actress category, you know, another surprise with Sydney Flanagan winning for uh, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, a movie that neither one of us have seen, Scott. But um, and then who was the who was the runner up in that category? Julia Gardner for the assistant. Right, Julia Gardner for the assistant. I knew it was something that I was a fan of. So yeah, cool to see Never her. Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always is on HBO Max. So I'm going to watch it soon. Yeah, uh, cool to see Julia Gardner getting some recognition. Uh, because I don't think she will in the big awards. And I think that's a fantastic performance. Um, and then, you know, last thing to note, it's got Charlie Kaufman winning uh, best screenplay for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I believe that I would go out on the limb and say that this movie will get nominated for best adapted screenplay at the Oscars. It will probably be the only nomination that it gets, but yeah. uh, unless, you know, Jesse Buckley could somehow sneak in there, but I think that's a long shot, uh, unfortunately. But I do, I do think that Kaufman, particularly with writing, has such a good track record at the Oscars that I would be surprised if this doesn't pop up in the adapted screenplay category. Um, and obviously, you know, this is a good sign for it. Winning overall screenplay, they didn't break it up by original or adapted even here. It was just overall screenplay and uh, Charlie Kaufman winning there. So uh, again, we don't really know what this will spell out down the line, but at least, you know, to some extent, it does seem like some of the stuff that we have been talking about with the words, he's like Nomadland being the best favorite for best picture, Chloe Zhao probably being the favorite for best direct director and, you know, Anthony Hopkins being right in there in the mix uh, for best actor. Those things were confirmed by this. Interestingly, that Francis McDormand, right, for Nomadland, despite Nomadland winning best picture and director and McDormand being recognized elsewhere for her best actress, not first or second place here at this uh but maybe that's just a case of wanting to spread the wealth, right? Of people like Sidney Flanagan and Julia Garner, who are yeah. incoming actresses, whereas McDormand is, you know, as decorated as you can be as an actress. Yeah, I definitely think of it that way. I think that she's still a very strong contender. 
maybe not the favorite to win Best Actress, but certainly up there. I'd be surprised if she doesn't get a nomination. I haven't seen the film yet, but I'd be surprised if she doesn't ultimately end up with the nomination come oh, award yeah. season. But that's still, I mean, I shouldn't say come award season. We're in award season now, technically. Uh, but c- later on in the season when, you know, you're getting the bigger award shows with their nominations, I'd be surprised if she's not in the conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, she's going to get a nomination. I, I feel pretty safe yeah. in saying that. Uh, the know, Oscars things- like Frances McDormand, even after they probably, she probably ruffled a few feathers with her free, with her writer speech, um, inclusion writer speech. Look, and well, they should, and well, they should like her. She's one of the best we've got. True. All right, Scott. I think I should just about do it for episode 120. It's something like it's Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, the Cleveland Indians are going to be changing their name. And you know what? As a diehard Cleveland Indians fan, I got to tell you, I could not care less. All right. Cleveland baseball team coming in hot for the 2021 season. And we're all and here for it. We can win. I don't care. Like, Again, I tweeted this out, but for Pete's sake, we haven't won the World Series in 72 years. Maybe it's time to for a change. Like, no, it's definitely time for a change. Uh, maybe the name is what we need. We need to get that monkey off of our back uh, in order to, to get across the finish line. Yeah. Godspeed to the Cleveland baseball team next year. All right, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods where you can subscribe to our newsletter as well, although Scott is taking a bit of a hiatus as he acclimates to his new job, his new day-to-day schedule. He doesn't, he's not kicked back all week writing, you know, 10,000 word articles for you anymore. He's uh, kicked back, you know, at his desk writing 10,000 word briefs. Now I know he doesn't write briefs. He keeps telling me that he doesn't write briefs anymore. And, and I understand that's correct, but I'm going to keep saying it just to piss him off. But yeah, we're, you can please subscribe to our newsletter in the link, but uh, we'll be getting back to that hopefully sooner rather than later, but it might be a little bit of a delay as we adjust to what that might look like with Scott with a little bit less time on his hand. We also have a po- our podcast as a Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, you can check out all the different tiers for yourself. Pick the one that's right for you. If you're not able to support us over on Patreon, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. We'd really appreciate if you rated and reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And with that, I've said enough. We appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week with a review of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That is Chadwick Boseman's final performance in a major motion picture. Until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.